So in The Triumph of Human Empire and the Machine in the Garden, both of you have written about writers and thinkers in the latter half of the 19th century who were particularly attuned to the hazards of the encroachment of human empire during that period and drawn to some middle ground, a landscape or timescape not dominated by human presence, but hospitable to human experience. Whoa! Capture that sentence. <laughs> that, really, that really, that's a very... Inclusive. Yeah, very yeah. inclusive, and, but also accurate. So th- that is writers and thinkers who imaginatively shared the pastoral impulse and literally practiced some form of pastoral retreat. I'm thinking of your three, Ross, mm-hmm. Jules Verne, William Morris, and Robert Louis Stevenson, and across the Atlantic, Thoreau, Melville, Twain. Um, so what does that look like in these two environments? How did it manifest itself? similarly and differently, these two collective consciousnesses and in the work of the writers who articulated them and were perhaps particularly precious about what they saw. Okay, so this is this is a major topic. Yeah, well, what did they share or not in yeah. their response to what they saw as a world change yeah. or um, a transformed landscape? Um, I mean, you could say that the Americans were more optimistic. They had a more open environment. I mean, there were a lot of ways to look at the parallels and the differences. Um, you know, the railroad in the in Europe had already infiltrated. Yeah. It was, for Thoreau, such a big symbol of um, the frontier was gone. You know, it was a different world they inhabited to some degree. Different? In the sense that their immediate environment may have, you know, was different. I mean, they shared these impulses and these this consciousness, but yeah. in different environments. But, but the geography is was very it's different. Because, Leo, I can't tell you how many times I've seen you draw on a blackboard. It's like, here's the seaboard, here's the wilderness, yeah. and in the middle, you know, is, is, this, is a middle landscape, mm. which you're, you always will say... It's not a place. It's you know. It's uh, it's an ideal, or it's a relationship. But that does assume a continent. Mm-hmm. That it's organized. You know, the, you've drawn the American continent. So the question I had was, well, if you're in Europe, you don't you don't have that. The drawing is different. You don't have it. You have the Atlantic Ocean in the middle. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's one. I, or or. What what I you know the more I read about what these people were trying to say, I concluded that that they moved to the water, not necessarily to the Atlantic, but to some water, some water based experience was the closest that they could find to a pastoral retreat. It was moving from land to water, and it depended, you know, like. For, for Jules Verne, it was sailing off, the, you know, sailing in the North Sea. Um, it was sailing, but it was coastal sailing for the most part. He, you know, he wasn't trying to go that far, he, but he was hugging the shore, but sailing. And, and uh, Stevenson went paddling on the canals. And, well, these and, all, these, what these all had in common was a, a landscape that was malleable, that was, uh, that could be used to suit their needs and more than the one the one they came from. 
you come from an environment with fixed oh, okay. institutions and mm-hmm. so on, and the and you go to one which is um, much less finished um, and susceptible to your influence. Or, well, Lucy, you're going to say. Well, I, you know, I, when you mentioned water, I was thinking of Thoreau, Thoreau Walden yeah. Pond, Twain mm-hmm. on the river. I mean, Huck Finn on the river. Melville at sea. I mean, it is very much present in the American... In fact, so much so that in the discussion of water and landscape in the first few paragraphs of Moby Dick, the implication is any landscape that you're interested in has water. We're not interested in landscapes that don't have water. And it's almost absolutely true. Yeah. No, that's actually, I, I quote Melville because I can't not quote mm-hmm. him, you know, the, gazing at the sea. And it's yeah. just, you know, even right. if you're in Manhattan, um, that's what people do. By the, by the way, the first chapter I wrote about Jules Verne is titled Life on the Loire. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to, I don't know whether anybody's going to recognize Life on the Mississippi, <laughs> but that, that is the idea. Because right. again, it's a river. But it's a very specific river, and every river is different, right. and and so you can't just, you know, it, you have to look at the specifics as well as the general experience. How about Thoreau? Though I'm thinking, I mean, he he swims in Walden, he paddles around, he measures, he, measures. It. <laughs> he really well. It's like he it's the beans. book is <laughs> called Walden. Well, it's got eighteen chapters. The ninth, the tenth chapter is called the pond, and it is organized around the concept of the pond, actually. And the pond in winter is where he he, he goes through the pond, the seasons, and he comes to the pond, and now he goes under and to measure its depth, and the depth becomes a metaphor for the plumbing of human consciousness. I mean, it does make sense that water, you know, if you, I mean, on the one hand, you know, is sort of the primal ingredient of life, and on the other hand, it is, it's finite in the sense that, you know, it could be what we end up not having enough of. Yeah, yeah. And that sort of that impulse to go back to the water yeah. makes a lot of sense for people who are sort of kind of calibrating where we're all at in terms of the dominance. So much so that there are, you'd be hard-pressed to find many landscapes written that, that didn't have water. I mean, so. Yeah. Or, or that appeal, that arouse meditation. Yeah. Um, but, but on the other hand, before, you know, lest we get too sappy about water, shall we say, it's also very scary and very, and very frightening, the, flood, oh, the flooding of the Loire yes. yes. Mississippi. And, and uh, in, this, in this respect, William Morris is such an interesting example because he loves the Thames, he knows the Thames, he fishes there, he wades there, he swims, he, you know, it's his river. But he also goes to Iceland. And when he takes a pony trek around Iceland, they have to cross the rivers on ponies. And these are rushing, you know, glacial-fed waters, and, and he's terrified. So for him, crossing the river becomes a test of courage. And I will add, of the ponies' courage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they felt like the ponies were the real heroes of crossing the river. But so then he, when he comes back to 
England and becomes a soldier. Who is this? This is William Morris. Yeah. So he comes back to England uh, and becomes a socialist. And, and his metaphor for becoming a socialist is crossing the river of fire. It, it, and, of course, Iceland has a lot of fire in that landscape, too. Right. And I, I have to think that that metaphor comes out of, okay, there's something really scary, the water's... It looks like you can't get across, but you have to believe you can cross that river, and you just do it. And I think, it, 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 as I say, it's a reminder that water is not always blissful or peaceful. Oh, right. It's anything but, but meaningful. Yes, and sort of a, a, a vantage point to look at civilization yeah. by retreating from it to yeah. some degree or moving away from it. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think, well, Thoreau, obviously, but but well, Finn... Well, Melville. I mean, and, and and I'm sure is that true? And in... oh yeah, I mean, uh, well, because Verne is, is yes. <laughs> and, and then the retreat. You know, Robert Louis Stevenson. Yeah. Well, the, but Stevenson, when he's a young man, he's paddling around northern Europe, yeah. and it's kind of you know it's middle scape. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's wonder, wonderfully evocative of the middle landscape. But then when he ends up in the South Pacific, yeah. Okay, we're you've also been right yeah. at the at the you know in the latter eight years of his life or seven anyway latter years of his life. Then he's seen this invasion of okay, it's both Western imperialism you know, of the late nineteenth century, but it's also human empire on a larger scale. It's just Polynesia, which is a which is a world of islands, you know, is is being overrun by another world, and that that is just it's a tragedy, and he um, he sees it as a whole other way of life because it's based on water entirely, the Polynesians, and that that's just something that most Westerners never experienced, and so his great mission is to try to explain to his audience back home what this what this new world is like, and people back home just. For the most part, we're not. Like, why is he writing about these strange people? So he never, he never got an audience for those works until recently, when, when now mm-hmm. much more. A tune, yeah. yeah. Another thing that you raised in your book is this concept of an event of consciousness, mm-hmm. and something you said that came out of conversation between the two of you, and it, it the notion that the various components of material experience. And material a material reality mm-hmm. are not necessarily what determine a pivotal moment, but sort of how those things are uh, integrated in the imagination mm-hmm. can be the sort of pivotal element of it. And um, that sort of raises the question of why we, you, looked at writers as the sort of ones who can help us sort of understand a moment in history and an experience of sort of a a shift in human reality. You know, as you were introducing that thought, my impulse was to turn it around and say that we turn to writers to better understand a virtually universal experience of water and Mm. uh, so on that. The writers didn't discover it. People did. I mean, it's part of human experience. And they used... So that at the end of 
the central chapter of Walden, which is called The Pond, he says that uh, the locals think the pond is... They have a theory that the pond is bottomless. He said, but I can assure you uh, that it has a very tight bottom. In fact, I went to prove it. And then he has this wonderful description measuring the depth of the pond. You know, he took a piece of string, he tied it to a rock, he lay on his belly, he cut a hole in the ice, he dropped the thing, he pulled it up, he allowed... And it, uh, it all builds up to this wonderful concluding line. And he said, as long as there are ponds, some will be thought to be bottomless, but I, <laughs> but I can assure you that they... They all have yeah, bottom. Yeah. You know, you're, you're mentioning that wonderful, well, the chapter in that part of it, um, you know, br- brings up another way of answering your question, Lucy, about writers. They, all the guys, I think, that we are, that we're interested in as writers, are they are interested in, quote, science and technology. I mean, they're not, you know, just lying out in the woods um, blue skying it as the saying goes, because I mean I think of throwing at you know I'm going to measure this I'm going to I'm going to yeah. I'm going to figure this out. The three writers I take are all deeply interested in, in science and in engineering in very different ways. And so one one thing they they do is is is, sh- is show other ways of using or working with those mental tools, but they but they're incorporating them in in literature too, it's, it's, I just I just don't want anybody to think of well, there's science over here and there's writing over there or imagination. A- over absolutely, there. yeah. Right. I mean, they seem both very attuned to the realities of absolutely. Oh, yeah, yeah, and uh, and that's the big story. I mean, Thoreau's greatest book really is his journal, and it's very large. It depicts a struggle between. Uh, the poetic and and scientific or empirical Mm. writing about nature. And uh, you can trace the progression as he takes more and more control over... over. But you just said something really important, that that the writing about nature, there, there is a struggle between the scientific and... You know other ways of experiencing and writing right. about, and and back to the event of consciousness. I th- I think what I I'm trying to do in my book, in part, is look at environmental history as history, human history. There, I mean, there's so much written about quote environmental history as you know all the usual measures: ex- extinction of species, or depletion of resources, or population, or energy use, and these are all very, very real, okay? But um, it's still it's still not, it's more material history, it's not a human history. Or to use another example, if we call it the age of the Anthropocene, that's kind of like lifting yourself above human history and looking down on humans as if we're another, we are a species, but it's kind of this bird's eye view of What's going on? I'm trying to write environmental history that begins with human perception and human uh, feeling that the world, you know, the historical world has changed because now humans are so dominant and not just kind of one of the mix, but have so much influence about what goes on. And, and the idea of an event of consciousness is one effort to try to 
say that. <laughs> um, but without using the language of, of environment or material history, I guess I'm, I'm having I'm having a struggle myself. Uh, well, I do. This. Yeah, I, one thing I think is that for both of you, you know, you're talking about consciousness and you're talking about language and the vocabulary. You're both very careful in the way you approach, you know, I mean, nature, for instance, the word that you just used, I mean, and and the relation between nature and humanity, I mean, the notion that they are polar opposites, that they are, that they, that we look at them as a dichotomy and not as sort of humans at some point actually altering the processes of nature. I mean, the profound ways in which we are part of nature is some another thing that I feel um, well, having we both ta- struggled with. <laughs> well, having taught with Leo for how many years, and I tell you, he really spooks students. Like, if you're going to use the word technology, exactly. well, that's better, another one. <laughs> you better be prepared to defend your right. what you mean by that. And I think environment is a very similar word. That, yeah. that like technology, the two often go together. It's kind of like one displacing the other anyway. You can say things that you can't say without those words, but you also can trap yourself in a sort of loop. Yeah. And and if you look at these writers, they're talking about these experiences without using that language, and that's very liberating. It just yes. gives you many more alternatives um, to speak with. Right. And need and and you use technology very sparingly in your book. Well, again, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but but in part because the people I'm writing about don't have that word. Uh, yeah. I mean, I just, yeah, I don't think they ever use it. But even if that's an overstatement, it's pretty close. But but more that it it can be a problem word of just a way of uh, you know pl- plunking in a, cl- a placeholder. You know, the the word cliche I understand in French refers to the types a piece of type. That a typesetter uses it's not just one yeah. letter, but the whole you know uh, common words. You clunk it in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. So or that's, else. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So anyway, that's what I'm trying to avoid. Yeah. But you have technology, of course, in the subtitle of the machine in the garden, which, mm-hmm. given that it was published almost 50 years ago, right, yeah. is in itself worthy of mention. Yeah. The other word um, that appears in that book, which is, was very new at the time, was ecology. Uh-huh. Do you have about environment? Is that is that a word you used? I don't think of one way, one way or the other. Yeah. Whether I did, I must have. Uh, it's possible. But yeah, yeah. But the point is, it certainly didn't. But dominate. Thoreau's journals is a really a workshop on these issues. And he he records his observations. And uh, people have studied these meticulously. I mean, he becomes more and more, quote, scientific. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and less metaphorical. Yeah. And, and was, that a very, was that a conscious effort on his part, or...? He became more strict about... He was always a keen observer, but he he allowed himself to poeticize and so on in the early days. As he went on, he became more and more strictly empirical. And so that's a re- that's a really interesting analogy with Robert Louis Stevenson, 
because once he got to the South Seas, he he was there because a, a publisher of a New York newspaper paid him to go there to write letters from the mm-hmm. South Seas. And the letters were supposed to be adventurous and colorful and exotic. Stevenson got there, and he was not very quickly not interested in doing that because he was seeing a world in crisis, and he wanted to understand it, record it. He started taking notes on the languages, the customs, really ethnographic study. Uh, he was trying to turn himself into a social scientist and a natural scientist. He was interested in the coral reefs and had read Darwin and was trying to bring back specimens. His editors, his friends back home, and his wife all thought he was totally wasting his time for being scientific. And that's the word they use. Why are you writing about science and not about adventure and about people? And and Stevenson just, you know, he really dug in his heels. And just the book never got published in the form that he meant it to, but but we do have his letters, which are very much like a journal, where he's, you know, he's talking about the customs, the death rates. He's trying to speculate. Is this before or after he was hospitalized? For uh, he was in the South Seas in part to try to regain health. Before he, he was up in the Adirondacks. Yeah. So, so the uh, New York publisher visited him. In Saranac Lake. Yeah. And so he's up there, it's 30 degrees below, you know, he's in Saranac Lake for his lungs. The publisher arrives and said, says, what if I, what if I pay you to write me, you know, letters from the South Seas? Well, that's, that's an easy one. <laughs> so, cause, cause either the mountains or the seas were deemed to be a cure, a, a, you know, a mm. environmental cure for what ailed him. So, so that's, yeah, so he agreed in the next spring he was, he was off to the Marquesas. Well, Melville has, I mean, yeah. he wrote yeah. those sort of yarns. The, yeah. And then when he decided to write Moby Dick, it was a sort of yeah. fierce decision to, yeah. Yeah. to write something yeah. more. Yeah, not what his public wanted, wanted. or what. Yeah. And, and very scientific yeah. in some parts. So, I mean, when you look at the descriptions of the whale, I'm very yeah. rooted in the actual experience of... Well, not to mention the technology of whale Yes, and the technology. Uh, yeah. and, and so Stevenson had read Melville, admired him tremendously, and, and his first stop in the Marquesas, it was where Melville had sort of been on semi-imprisonment or shore leave or something. Anyway, the, yeah. the, 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 so the task crossed. It's Taipei. Yeah, yeah. Do you have more questions? I well, feel like I mean, one question that I, I think of is um, bringing it up to date, because obviously mm. this is over a century ago that these mm. writers were ex- coming to terms with a, I mean, a, a, a transformed landscape. You talk about the mapping, that, that yeah, this yeah, was the right, end, when right. the whole world is mapped, and, and where the front, you know, they were very prescient about that. And I guess the question I have, one question I have is sort of what, what do what's useful about the way they think about these things for us in a much more accelerated crisis of the of you know humans' dominance of nature? Say that again. What 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 about their sensibilities and the way that they perceive? Yeah. This? Can we can can we either? Be sustained by, or learn from, or 
so what is, 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 is another way of asking the question or is there a usable past? Well, I don't know if it has to be usable, but I, I think one thing you start to talk about is that in this period, people are very disoriented, I think, mm. by the accelerated, you know, shifts that human, you know, penetration of the environment have caused. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and, and, but we don't talk about it that way. We don't talk about Oh, we do, but you're supposed to love it. It's called change. Oh, all right, so that's one thing. Yeah, and that's all supposed to be, we're all supposed to nod and say, oh, this is great. And I, you know, part, okay, part of what I'm doing in my book, I think, is saying, uh, not book, I mean, it's not like the book, it's kind of work, how's that, is, you know, who, who says we have to feel that way? And, and you know, let's be more honest I think about, for, for, I mean, so for example, I mean, we're talking, you know, two days after the, the marathon bombing, and I have seen over and over again people say, it will never be the same, and it breaks my heart. Yes, I mean, there are things you want to be the same, you don't want to go away. And, and so I think this ideology of innovation change, that's one thing that, that these guys, these writers, they don't buy that. Or, or only, I mean, Vern buys it, say, in part, but there's a whole other part that is mourning, you know, the loss of, of a world that was familiar to him. So it's not that it's either or. I'm just saying there's a whole range of feelings, I think, that are not uh, appreciated or even accepted in kind of the, the discourse of, of historical progress. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems to me... But to put it in slightly different terms, that uh, the world out there was seen by writers as a source of meaning. And uh, you described that world and you elicited meanings from it. As the change accelerated, that source was threatened. Uh, The stability of it was threatened. And I think a lot of what we're talking about has to do with the fact that uh, the natural world uh, has come under such pressure from human beings that it is no longer available as a source of meaning. Of, yeah, yeah. And, uh, it's to be managed. It's to manage or to be a sort of little escape, right. but not a... Mm. No, that's that's very that's very well put, and I think I think yeah, I, there's no one sentence here that's going to capture um, an answer to your question, like what what is you know what are we supposed to get out of this? But that that I think is is one real no human experience is being there are many experiences that we are having that are that we have, find difficult to articulate and very hard to validate. In, right. in a culture that, you know, is always, you know, for lots of reasons of power and money, you know, emphasizing change and instability and glorifying in it. And uh, I, think, I think there's a mismatch between that, that structure, that whole set of structures, and how human beings actually are. And, yeah. You know, and, well, yeah, I, I guess what I was trying to say is what makes these writers sort of fresh... Uh, and vital a hundred years hence. And part of what you're saying is an answer to that, um, that, you know, they, 
But I also think, and it's related, that, um, that, that they, their access to this sort of um, relational experience between is, is, was much more accessible in some ways to them than it often is to us. And therefore, we can relearn you know, what it means to be part of, to, to have... Um, a relation to nature that isn't utterly um, human dominant, yeah, yeah. and and that 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 it's not like use value, but it's um, it's it's more that it, it it taps experiences and imaginations that we often forget, don't have yeah. tap, get tapped, and, and they are closer to other sources of articulation and meaning than, than we are. In other words, we've been cut off from a lot. It's been a yeah. hundred years. Okay. Yeah. So they're they're right. more they're they're cutting edge people. They see, yeah. if you will, yeah. okay, which is a good modern expression. They see, you know, they're at the very point where all the takeoffs are just taking off. Right. They're keenly aware of that, but they also have, you know, for example, you know, so William Morris is studying Icelandic, okay? Yeah. And he's able to turn sagas into what we now call fantasy literature. I mean, you can't invent fantasy the way he did without being in touch with an older literature. Yeah. It, 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 just, it just wouldn't have happened. And so that, that comes out of something that he was connected with. And all I think any of these writers, you can look back and say, okay, because they are aware of these traditions or have this vocabulary. That's why they were able to articulate what they did so well. And they had experiences that are unrepeatable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know? I mean, I mean, Stevenson on one, one Pacific island, he says, we're here at this moment in time. Ten years earlier, we probably couldn't have landed here. You know? Yeah. Ten years later, it's going to be gone. And yeah. he was right. He knew it. And the other thing I think these people have to teach us is a moral attitude, which is they're very, they're very courageous. You know, if there's wrong, you write it. You know, if there's, you try to improve the world, but they have no illusions that they're going to save the world. You know, it's bit, history is bigger than they are. And so they don't kid themselves, but they're also, they also take as a responsibility being happy in the world, even though what you care about is disappearing. I mean, I think that's a very, very hard balance to make. And, uh, but but they're very explicit about trying to keep some sort of balance, happiness and, and um, realism. I have one last question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's sort of related to this, but in the land, I was thinking about sort of vocabulary and the ways that we try to find some middle ground that that we can rest in in the in the modern landscape and and and, so, and sustainability hmm. seems to yeah. be the lang- the word of right. choice these days that we we are we're never going to go back to you know the kind of plenitude that existed or the open or what but maybe we can have sustainability um and that that's become the word yeah. of choice. I, I'm wondering what what you think about that in the context of mm. what these people were sort of looking for, and is it um, a sort of modern version of the middle scape? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, 
the middle landscape, you know, as a word. It's kind of a jargon word. In my, yeah, I, but a point, you know. But it has some... Well, you figure there are three, there are, there are only three patterns <laughs> to history that you can imagine that it gets better, it has progress, but it goes down, that's apocalypse or decline, or it's sustainable. Yeah. There are cycles that repeat. And we better figure out what sustainability really means. Because yes. <laughs> right, it's one of those words that can throw out. Yeah, the, the pro, you know, I think progress is a deep belief in it still, yeah. but there's also much more a sense of, of apocalyptic events, not one big one, but just this one and that one and that Overload. one. Overload. Yeah, and... Um, the sense of the end, sort the end of history already being incorporated into history. It's not yeah. just out there. So uh, sustainability may be jargon, but it's a very you know it's the only hope. And yeah. but it's a much deeper, much more complicated uh, state than people have begun. This is not just a material state. It's it's an emotional, it's an intellectual. Anyway, so that. That's the challenge, yes. Really, it takes us... Well, it has an, an analog in what, <clears throat> what we've been talking about. I mean, just to go back a little bit, uh, the natural world served literature for centuries as a source of meaning. You found meaning in describing and countering the natural world. That's what books like Moby Dick are about, in fact. And... Uh, but as human beings put a stronger and stronger imprint on the natural world, it ceased to be a source of independent meanings. And that's the great sense of loss that runs through all this, that for writers, the natural world is material for meaning. And um, so the implication would be you'd have to find your meaning somewhere else You'd have to construct it. And that's where I think a lot of your thoughts about technology come in. That is that you have a new kind of source. It's much more synthetic and man-made. But it's still, yeah, but it's man-made or human-built. And, you know, what's irreplaceable is the other, the you know, the, the other than human. Yeah. Um, and um, Which is hard to gain access to. Yeah. Yeah, um, it's when you're always running into yourself that it can be well designed, it can be well engineered, it can be have all the human smarts in it, but it's still, you know, just because it's human built, it's, it's limiting uh, as, as a source of meaning. So that, I, I mean, one question about sustainability then is, can we imagine a sustainability that is a that is a human empire? Or can it only be a non-imperial state where humans you know, share the world? The world has some agency. Yeah, and I, you know, I don't know. But that, that when I said it's a much deeper problem. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, how it would look. You yeah, know, what, what are yeah. we talking about here? Yeah. <laughs> it, 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 I can answer that. It doesn't look like what is where we're headed now. Right. We're not close. Right. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, we could go on forever, but I, yeah. I think. It's you got, you know, how much wisdom can you possibly <laughs> cover in an hour? <laughs> anyway, thank you. Really, you have any 
final words? Parting, parting <laughs> shots or well, I mean, uh, what you the trend is away from finding meaning out there in the natural world to creating meaning out of whole cloth, <laughs> out of modern writing. Yeah. And uh, then with a book like Joyce's Ulysses, you play on this contrast between what uh, Ulysses was for Ulysses yeah. and what it is in a small town in Ireland. And uh, uh, the, there's a sort of ironic treatment of the modern world as a source of meaning uh, of nature yeah. in the modern world yeah. the, we no longer count on discovering meaning in the natural yeah there's nothing more to discover i mean yeah. it's basically a question of diminishment right yeah. now i think i think I'm, sh I'm sure if we had scientists here, yes, I was just thinking they, they would argue. If we had scientists right. here, they would argue that point very strongly. It's true, and they'd be right, um, and they'd be right. Uh, but I would just say, um, well, what's the, what's, yeah, the, what's the science? I mean, in other words, you, well, I mean, we're what about space or you know where you can find discovery? Yeah, caterpillars. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you know, very basic or, thing. Now, now, I mean, yeah, certainly but, in science, it's data and molecules and this very right. you know. So, so but. But you could, you could but have it could inspire yeah. the imagination. What? Well, it would inspire the imagination. I mean, if to, to sort of conceive of, uh, you know, the would black hole or the. But would it serve the literary imagination? Well, well, that, That's the question. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or would it serve as a general? I mean, science is an incredibly important and significant part of our culture, but I would say for. Experience of, of you know people at large. It's not how nature is experienced. It's just you know if it had there are many many people who just maybe appreciate science but aren't practicing it, and it just doesn't address what we're talking about in terms of a way of finding meaning in the world for societies at large. Well, a scientific account of cosmic reality doesn't serve very well for poets and novelists. Well, and, I, I would even... I, no, I would argue that too, but um, but, I, but I, I still think that if... You know, sci science is, is deeply intellectual, it's deeply philosophical in terms of everyday life experience. Right. It just... It's not... I'm just stating, I think trying to make an empirical statement. It does not shape how most people experience, experience the non-human world, the non -human world yeah. on, on a daily basis. Right. So so it's just I'm just saying it's extremely powerful but also limited. Sure. That's a good way to put it. <laughs>